0: All right, everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial over at audibletrial.com other people. That's slash O T H E R P E O P L E. audibletrial.com other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Gee, did it Struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Oh. Everybody, here we go again. <laughs> right. This is it. This is other people. This is a writer being interviewed. This is the 354th time that I've done this. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's great to be with you. I have an excellent show for you today. My guest is Sarah Nicole Prickett. She is the founding editor of Adult Magazine and a contributing editor at the new Inquiry. By the way, Inquiry, really hard word to say. Just want to let you know that. Inquiry. It's phonetically difficult. But uh, Sarah is going to be talking to me on this podcast momentarily. I had fun talking with her. And uh, I I wanted to first get to a few uh, orders of business. I went to see a movie last night. I went to see uh, Ex Machina. Is that how you say that? Ex Machina. The new science fiction movie by Alex Garland. The guy who wrote The Beach. He wrote 28 Days Later, too. One of my favorite films. Genuinely creepy. Great film. But I I think Danny Boyle directed uh, directed that one, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Alex Garland, good mind I love the beach, I love 28 Days Later I thought I would go see this I, I sort of went, spur of the moment And I went late to the, uh, like the 9.30 show Which is late for me And uh, I get to the theater And I'm thinking, okay, it's late I'm kind of tired, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this thing So I go to the uh, concession stand And I buy a Coke And the guy fills up a, a fountain Coke For me, and he hands it to me And I pay him, and he says, thank you and he says, "Enjoy your movie, sir." And I say, uh, "Thanks, man. You too." So, uh, the movie was good. I enjoyed it. It was fine. Like it wasn't some kind of transcendent uh, experience, but it was. It was good enough. And I thought that the uh, the uh, the robot girl, Ali- I think her name is Alicia Vikander. She was great. She played a very convincing robot. Her performance was robotic. And, uh, seems plausible enough. I guess that's coming, right? They're going to invent humanoid robots that uh, we're going to have relationships with. And if you have money, like eventually, like, I think they're going to start out like all technology being very expensive and then they're going to gradually become cheaper and cheaper. And you're going to have this like humanoid robot that's like a, like realer than real. I guess theoretically this is going to happen. And it's going to hang out with you. And it's going to be able to anticipate your needs. And it's going to be a great conversationalist. And it's always going to be there for you. You're just going to buy a friend. And it's going to be a robot. And eventually they'll turn. They'll turn on humanity. <laughs> Something to look forward to as the sea levels rise. And, uh. The polar ice caps splinter and calve. But it's like, it's sort of fucked up when you think about it, you know? Like, I think about it in, in the sense of uh, human loneliness, how isolated people feel, especially as they get older, especially when you get really old. I think it's uh, more and more common as you get elderly to just feel isolated. People sitting inside just watching soap operas, going for a walk, like feeding ducks, like that sort of shit, you know? those people could use a a robot, a humanoid. So eventually people are just going to pay for a robotic company and prefer it over human company, which is already the case with everybody in their phones. This is the direction that we're heading. We're all exhausted by one another. You ever get that you ever get that feeling? Rare is the person. Uh, rare is the friend who really invests time in the people around them and, like, actually cares to hear about their deepest concerns. So when you think about... uh, And I mean, you know, is that too negative? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think people have the uh, bandwidth. Everybody is the star of their own movie. God, I hate using the term bandwidth in the context of uh, human emotional capacity. But you know what I'm saying. You have a problem you have uh, you know, some sort of deep concern, you go to a shrink. At some point in the human experience, you have to pay people to care. Unless you have really good friends with a lot of wisdom and a lot of free time and a lot of bandwidth. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just like, look at your phone or if you can afford therapy, go to your therapist. Otherwise, I don't know. Good luck. Wait for AI, wait for a robot, wait for a beautiful humanoid robot to come sit with you while you feed ducks. One of the things I often say is that I have too much on my plate. I use the plate metaphor too much. I got a lot on my plate. I'm spinning plates. It's always about plates with me or bandwidth, I guess. I got to stop talking like that. Got to be a better listener, be a better friend. that making any sense <laughs> i climbed a mountain this past weekend with my daughter i, I like to do that I, I feel like i excel as a father uh, in, in the context of nature i want to show my children nature i like going hiking with my daughter it's my favorite thing like probably my favorite thing in the world to do take her out into the uh mountains walk around with her because she you know she just does play-by-play the whole time she never stops talking she gets down on the ground. She's like drawing in the dirt. She's naming rocks. She's making up games where the rocks have names and identities and we got to pay the, like they're magical. You know, it's this whole thing, this whole kid world. And, uh, it's fun to be around. So this past weekend I was like, you know, on this kind of a, another spur of the moment decision, I was like, we're going to go hiking and we're going to do a new hike because I'm sick of doing the same three or four hikes that we always do. So I look something up, on my, you know, uh, look something up on my phone and, and I punched it into uh, the GPS, and off we go. And long story short, it turned out to be the highest peak in the Santa Monica Mountains, which I didn't read. <laughs> didn't do my due diligence. And uh, it was way up in the Santa Monica Mountains, which, in my defense, are not that high. It's like 3,300 feet is the highest peak. So uh, we're not talking like a snow line or anything crazy. Nor was the trail you know all that difficult. But, uh, you know, it was late in the afternoon, so we were sort of running out of daylight. And, uh, the last pitch of the hike was steep, especially coming down. And it was too much for a four-year-old, but, you know, I told her we could turn around, but I had also told her at the beginning of the hike that there was a log book at the summit and you could write your name in it. And when you tell a four-year-old something like that, it tends to stick in their head. And so she insisted on doing the summit. And we wrote our names in there. She's four years old. She summited uh, the highest peak. <laughs> and then on the way down, it got, you know, there's loose rock. It's steep. We went down, we turned around, we went back up. We had to find a new trail. I got a little worried. You know, I was carrying her. Rocks were sliding, that sort of stuff. And uh, And then we were running out of daylight. So I put her on my shoulders and just carried her the whole way down, which was like, You know, 45 minutes down. She's four years old. So it's like 40 pounds. I'm still sore. I'm old. But it was fun. It was beautiful. And uh, speaking of mountains, there was a mountain lion in Los Angeles yesterday. I don't know if you saw that, it was uh, in somebody's crawl space up in Los Feliz. P-22 is the name of this lion. They've tagged it, and it lives in Griffith Park, which is like this big park uh, up in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. And it just seems crazy to me. There's a lion in Los Angeles. There's a wild lion within city limits that lives here. Apparently that's safe. P-22. They need a better name for it. It sounds like artificial intelligence. Give the fucking lion a name. Sounds like a, you know, it's like a coordinate. It's like a bingo. It's like a bingo thing. Uh, I got a, I got a letter I want to read real quick. I keep getting mail about the uh, April Fool's Day episode, the Michiko Kakatani spoof episode. Uh, A listener named Carrie writes, I was so pissed at the revelation that your interview with Michiko was actually an April Fool's Day joke. Yes, I was wondering why there wasn't more talk about her work. And and uh, as a book critic, yes, I was wondering why I couldn't find a Google Images picture of her long hair. <laughs> uh, and I'll interject here. The woman that I actually was speaking with, Laura Norton, has uh, extremely long black hair that goes all the way down to her calves. So we were talking about that. And, uh, of course, people thought that uh, I was speaking with Michiko, the head book critic of the New York Times. Uh, so Carrie continues... I was also happy for you that she really liked talking with you Like uh, maybe you were making a great impression On such an influential book critic Now I don't know if Laura Norton is the cool woman you interviewed Or if the biography she described is quote Real or not Signed Carrie Uh, So Carrie, yes, Laura Norton is real Everything about that was real from her perspective Her bio, her life She wasn't making anything up And Laura, uh, you know, is uh, Mira Gonzalez's mom Many of you know who Mira is If you're on the Twitter, she's a poet, writer, uh, and a buddy of mine. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns uh, uh, I think that's it. I think we should get, you know, get started with the show. My guest once more is Sarah Nicole Prickett, founding editor of adult magazine, contributing editor at the new inquiry, uh, and a fine writer. And I had a great time talking with her. Here she is. This is Sarah Nicole Prickett. Very stylish. She knows how to dress. Mm-hmm. She's very beautiful. Uh, she's got a lot of brains. She seems like she's dialed into uh, New York City at, at some sort of like advanced level socially.
1: Uh, oh wow!
0: Is that true? I-, I mean,
1: I sound amazing.
0: Yeah, you do. But this is this is what you're someone in.
1: Someone should uh, someone should marry me or put me in a pageant or something. <laughs> I've just, you know, I put a bow on my head. I'm
0: just telling you what the, your, 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 the internet projects you thusly to me. And I don't think I'm...
1: Well, I'm sure I have some hand in that, brand.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm saying you've branded yourself well online. You have an instinct for that, maybe. Do you feel like you do?
1: Uh, well, I have an, uh, an instinct for self-preservation, if that's the same thing as branding. Okay. Um, I have an unwillingness to be seen unstyled or unedited to a degree. So I guess all of those things play into it. And I think on Google and on Google image, the results can be a little dated. Uh, for instance, you don't know that I've recently taken to only wearing, um, burlap and sweatpants. Um, is that a joke? Yeah, that's a joke. I don't have a different voice. I'm working on having a different voice for joking and also on telling <laughs> jokes and um, on being funny. <laughs> These are, like, goals. No, I like it.
0: I like so, yeah,
1: it. no, I mean, it's, I like, you know, I like people as they are now. I think that when someone meets you, they're getting, um, they're getting a chance to make themselves over a little bit or, j- or just to start over. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know.
0: And then like versus like online, because you talked about like, you know, uh, you know, you, you sort of carefully, cure, yeah. you sort of carefully curate your online.
1: Oh, well, uh, let's, not, let's uh, not state the case here. Well, but I, mean, I, a, I said I had an instinct for it. I don't think that enough care sometimes goes into what I put online. I mean, it's a lot. My approach is less, um, to select the things that I say, uh, it's more to um, say something and regret it, and then think, "Well, if I say ten more things, everyone will forget the thing that I said before.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, um, adult magazine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The genesis of it, uh, I know you've talked about this a lot in interviews. Like it mm-hmm. gets, it gets characterized a lot as like a feminist approach to pornography yeah. or to adult magazines, um, but that was not explicit in the conception like you weren't thinking of it as a as a feminist rag when you started it yes or no
1: I wasn't thinking of it as a rag at all I was thinking of it <laughs> as you know um as a real great magazine and I I guess I had in mind that people would talk about it at some point um in the future as they talk about like you know playboy Um, not that we would ever, I would have no idea how to make something as big or as monolithic as Playboy, and I'm glad, uh, as I hinted at earlier when we were talking about Midtown, that it's not the time for that, that no one is burdened with speaking to or for that many people. But uh, I love the way that people, the kind of, um, the real love that people seem to have for a magazine like playboy um and its mix also of you know brains and beauty and i guess there was probably a little bit of brawn in there as well um and i just thought well a magazine like that not really like that at all and not for men would be um would be a a a, a sexy endeavor yeah well and it's in more than one way i
0: i feel like it's uh i feel like the timing is good when i when (laughs) i First, heard about it a couple years ago, I was like, Well, this is a great idea. Like, why has someone not done this? Like, it felt like something that should, you
1: know. Even I- the name, it was crazy that there wasn't already a magazine called Adult. It's a yeah. perfect name.
0: Yeah, I was like, Oh, that's how, I feel like that's how great ideas often feel. It's like, Why didn't I think of that? It seems so free, you know, so obvious and so right there. <laughs> and it seems like you snatched it out of the air. And
1: It did snatch it out of the air, the air in my head, Brad. But more <laughs> so, I was just, um, I was watching a lot of old movies and new porn, um, and, you know, I guess those things were just rubbing together and some kind of spark came out of it. But, you know, the magazine that we made with the first issue, uh, I made it with, I attempted to make it with men, and it didn't totally work out. So the first issue ended up being a sort of um, tame kind of, I don't want to say diluted, but certainly not the most distilled version, which no first issue of any magazine ever is. but it was quite like a soft opening <laughs> that first issue. Um,
0: you don't feel like this uh, magazine is for men. you think this is for women is that how I just
1: you- think it's not for men. Men can read it, right. but it's not made for them, you know
0: like like and me, that's like,
1: like, like a lot of those things for a a long period of time were, you know, made first for men and then women uh, kind of had to appropriate them, find them, use them anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, Then sometimes special little versions were made for women um, that were smaller and more pink. So, you know, I wanted to do a magazine that wasn't smaller or more pink. I wanted to do a big, colorful magazine.
0: And it's for, and it's for women. I like that. And it's it's like
1: no, it's not. It's just not for men. And you know, Brad, there are more than two kinds of people in the world.
0: That's right. So, and where are you from originally? You're Canadian.
1: I am. Yeah. Where, How many places do you know in Canada?
0: I mean, I know uh, several. I think that's I,
1: better than most Americans. Yeah,
0: I feel like I, could, some, I, think I when pressed, yeah. I could name the provinces. I feel like if I could, you know, if I had name to say, it, do it. Oh God, uh, uh-huh. British Columbia, Saskatchewan. Alberta, Ontario, Quebec.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like I'm missing one in the middle. Newfoundland. That's east. I know. Uh, Nova Scotia, that's also east. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia. I said Ontario. What am I missing? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you said Newfoundland, right?
0: Yeah. Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. Uh,
1: you're missing PEI and Manitoba. That's the one in the middle.
0: Manitoba. That's the one I missed. Yep. Yes. And what's PEI?
1: PEI is where Anna Green Gables is from. Oh, okay. And where are you from? They also make potatoes. Right. Uh, so yeah, redheads and potatoes and sometimes a combination of the two called like a russet potato, I believe. Um, where am I from nearest Toronto, which is the biggest city in Canada, which I have and, been to, uh, you've been to, I have, yes. what was your experience?
0: I loved it. I was there with my wife. Wa- my wife was working at uh, the film festival and I tagged along and I just like went to movies.
1: Oh, what does she do?
0: Uh, she's like a talent exec. She like, uh, deals with celebs and you know, is wrangling them essentially. She's a celebrity wrangler. So.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's like a 24 hour mom.
0: Pretty much. Yeah. Lots of like besieged by unreasonable demands from publicists. So, um, you know, Mm. I was there in Toronto and like rented a bike and was just riding around Toronto. I loved it. I had a great time.
1: Biking is the thing that I miss. I mean, I can do it here and I can do it more in Brooklyn than I could when I lived for a year or so in Manhattan, but I miss biking in Toronto and and the age that I was when I was biking in Toronto and it was, you know, late, late night, early morning, summer, a lot of drugs and a lot of biking, no hands, smoking cigarettes. Those are some of my favorite memories. Um, but otherwise, I felt like I might stagnate and die in Toronto, so I moved to New York in 2012. But where I'm from is uh, London, Ontario, which is two hours away from Toronto. Um, and I also spent seven years growing up in Kingston, which is another smaller um you know, kind of white collar university town. Okay. That's how I remember it. That may not be accurate at all. Were your parents? A lot at, of limestone in Kingston.
0: Were your parents uh, academics?
1: No. <laughs> they were Christians.
0: They were? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you grew up in a Christian household. Uh, uh-huh. And like, how Christian are we talking? Like, are we talking like uh, American Bible Belt level of Christianity, of evangelical or?
1: Evangelical? Yep. Uh, Right wing. I went to church five times a week. You know, I was baptized in like a modest outfit. What does that mean? Uh, You know, I had to wear like a T-shirt and I don't know what I had to wear, like a full bathing suit, I think. And then a very long T-shirt that was a dark color. So you wouldn't see even my bathing suit through it. I was baptized in the pastor's pool. They, of course, had the largest home of any family in the church, and they had a pool, or maybe it was the pastor's sister pool. Sister's pool. They had the second largest home. Mm-hmm. And
0: this was an in-ground pool, not like one of those above-ground things. <laughs> it
1: was an in-ground pool.
0: Yeah. I feel like I mean I grew up in Milwaukee. I didn't have
1: to like jump from across into the pool or anything. You know, <laughs> they just lowered me in. And
0: but I feel like you know, okay,
1: 3. Yeah. I
0: don't want to be. I don't want to be. Uh, you know uh, too reflexive here there is this kind of backlash that can sometimes happen when somebody's raised in a super religious household yeah um, you know then then you know and where, where sex is be, you know is this taboo thing I'm, I'm assuming that sex was presented to you as a child as something you should avoid and that was sinful outside of the context of. Marriage.
1: oh yeah but so does everything you know and it's not like i'm making a magazine about halloween right although that's not a bad idea
0: yeah there could be a halloween issue of adult magazine i think that would be cool
1: I think we came out around Halloween. Well, wow, yeah. I'm learning a lot about myself today.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, so what you grew up, like, were you miserable? Because I grew up Catholic and I always <laughs> hated it. I was miserable from the beginning. Like, I don't know. I feel like there are people like that. Like, I'm assuming you've broken with the church and you no longer attend five days
1: a week. I no longer attend any days a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't attend anything five right. days a week. right. right. <laughs>
0: I don't even go to the gym. Yeah. So like, what, like, what was it? Were you an unhappy child?
1: Would I be likely to tell you if I was an unhappy child? No. The answer to that question is no. I figured out fairly early on that, um, how do I say this? that I felt further from God than I was supposed to. Um, and, and and my prayers, I think, often felt insincere. Did I want to believe it? Yes. Did I believe it? That depends on how close wanting to believe it is to believing, and I don't know the answer to that. But from God, like I said, I felt pretty far um, a lot of the time. But I was, you know, imbued with a religious sensibility Um, as much as I was indoctrinated with the religion itself. And though I managed to mold many layers of indoctrination, I still have often a religious way of perceiving or categorizing the world. Um, So you know, I see patterns and narratives and things that I now understand to be Christian. Hmm.
0: Do you have an example? Like,
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, the first book that I'm writing, which I'm trying to write, if I ever do publish it or even propose it, um, will have a very, I guess, a religious source or master narrative at the part of it
0: you mentioned earlier riding through toronto without you know on your bike no hands well
1: i was 23 24
0: okay but you i
1: guess in some ways a child
0: sure but you you rebelled technically you you rebelled at some point
1: it was so easy to rebel the way that i grew up you could just mm, watch like a movie rated pg-13 that had You know, a too passionate kiss between unmarried members of opposite sexes. You know, you could, um, like, listen to Madonna under the covers. Not that I really listened to a lot of Madonna. I bought a Lauren Hill record. That was confiscated. I got away with reading a lot of classics. But once my mother investigated the plot of Anna Karenina... And decided that was not a good thing to read either. For whatever reason, I was always allowed to read the Brontes, which is, you know, um, eternally funny to me. You know, like, here's a... We're, we're going to breed a real healthy girl child. <laughs> you know, here's Wuthering Heights. <laughs> good good luck with all your future uh, endeavors in love and marriage. No, I don't know. Um... My childhood. <laughs> I should save it for a memoir and then die first.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounds fascinating. Did you did you uh, date when you were in high school? Were you allowed to date? No. No. I was not. Did you secretly have relationships?
1: I did. I secretly have relationships, like with real flesh and blood men. I, I skipped classes. I hung out with guys, you know, I did what I could get away with. I walked home with a guy every day for a long time. Um, but I redeemed even that sort of out of bounds relationship by making him my best friend and then later making him my boyfriend, you know, to alleviate, I guess, the burden of wanting to have sex with him. Um, you know, I was really remarkably good, That's the, I guess, bitter irony of it, is that I did almost nothing that would displease the average parent. I almost did fail physics. I guess that would be pretty displeasurable. Um, But other than that, you know, yeah.
0: You were a good
1: kid. I didn't do very much to attract attention, negative or positive, but especially negative. Um, I wanted very badly to be like other people.
0: And did you, uh, like did the, the school that you were in, was it a mix of kids from different kinds of backgrounds or was, a, or was it a religious
1: No, school? not really. Our valedictorian, who I wish was on this podcast instead of me right now, because she would be a lot funnier and maybe more amenable to this line of questioning, she got up and made a speech um, and she was like, you know, uh, the valedictorian speech, you know, she was like, there are two, no, what did she say? Um... Something about, you know, there were almost too many kinds of people to count. She was lucky to have uh, gone to school in such a diverse environment. For example, you could find white kids who uh, wore Abercrombie and white kids who wore Gap. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I think that was a pretty accurate description. That or my memory has conformed <laughs> to that line because the line was so good, and I now believe it to be accurate, even if it wasn't. And then, you, and then you got out. You graduated and you got Well, I graduated, out. yeah. I got out right along with everybody else. Nothing remarkable there. I went to college in my hometown. So I was, you know, a townie. Is that an American expression, townie? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so I, I lived at home and went to school, for a year, but um, you know, going to school and having my own ideas was incompatible with living at home under my parents' roof and rule. And uh, after that first year, I left. <laughs> I moved to another house that didn't belong to my parents. That I shared with four other people who weren't in my family, there, you know, and that, I went to that, my second year of university.
0: Was that contentious? Um, was it contentious with your parents? Did they not want you to leave, or was it was it okay for you to leave?
1: It wasn't popular, no. Okay. <laughs> I would say that if you took a vote, it would be uh, zero to two against my moving out. All right. You know, in, in the constituency of my parents. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So then you move into this house with like a, a normal, like a more normal college existence where you're living with peers. Yeah,
1: four other girls, you know.
0: All right. And Pretty how, normal. How, how did you get to Toronto? Or was it in Toronto that how you... How
1: did I get to Toronto? Uh, I think I took a train, but I can't remember. And I went to journalism school, having failed um, to complete like half the classes in my second year at Western, the school in my hometown. And... Uh, and yeah, and so I went to journalism school because I thought I should try to turn whatever talent I had into something more like a trade. Um, I did not grow up in an environment where education was overvalued for education's sake, certainly valued, but like as a means to an end. I think my parents thought, you know, my parents always thought I was good at writing so long as I was writing something they considered good. And I guess I say good and much more of a moral sense than a, you know, than an uh, execution sense. They weren't overly concerned with style. I think they recognized, um, even without Google imaging me, that I had style. But they weren't keen on my styling myself, um, as you know, as the kind of writer that I am now. Not that I could have imagined been the kind of writer that I am now. Which is not to say anything about how great a writer I am, only to say how far I have traveled in a number of directions from, you know, from where I'm from and from where I was supposed to be. I think, you know, they probably thought that I would write, like, uh, YA novels, not that there's anything wrong with that, um, but, you know, YA novels with an explicitly Christian um, kind of content, uh, you know, for, for girls, obviously, and... Um, And that I would teach maybe at a school, maybe a Christian school.
0: So was writing something that you were always good at and was reading something you were always doing as a kid? I mean, were you demonstrating Mm -hmm. some writers bloom later and they they sort of show later some writers it's there from the start, you know, really?
1: I feel late blooming in so many ways, um, you know, because we didn't grow up with very many books in the house that were not Christian sort of instructional books or the aforementioned YA Christian novels, um, So unlike most of my peers now, I have, you know, no memories of like volumes of poetry or, um, you know, existential teachings or whatever. But, you know, it's fine. I'm glad that I came to things in my own sort of uh, twisted and belated way and that I had to learn to be a bit autodidactic. Um, I think it helped me in terms of not oversubscribing to any particular ism or school of thought um, as much as that religious sensibility was developed very early on. So as a kind of instinctual resistance.
0: I feel like if you're, if you grow up in in, uh, a religious tradition that you don't necessarily jive with, and then you, um, you know, uh, what is it, you become an apostate or whatever, and Mm -hmm. and you leave, (laughs) I feel like, you don't necessarily have any interest in reattaching yourself to a dogma. Um,
1: yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's what I just said. Yeah. Maybe not as well. (laughs) Well, No, but I mean, that's what I, that's what I was trying to say. And, um, and that I was read to, and that's one of the great things my mom did for me is she read to me a lot. Um,
0: what did she read to you?
1: You know, Little Women, Little House on the Prairie. You know, if it had little in the title, yeah, I was probably being read to from it. Um, but no, you know, she did help give me the kind of uh, talent for reading. I don't want to say writing necessarily, but like you know, reading, comprehension, spelling, the kind of I learned all the uh, the tools. I learned the technical elements of writing very early on. Right. Um, and so I had a natural aptitude combined with a sort of encouragement from my parents in this direction.
0: So uh, do they know what you're up to now?
1: Um, vaguely. Okay. Yeah, I'm I mean just... we talk. <laughs> we okay, talk. yeah, because I'm just We're not curious. estranged, <laughs> right?
0: I'm just curious, like you know, like yeah. adult magazine would not seem to be the sort of thing that like really like super Christian parents would be. Um,
1: yeah, great. well, they're not. They're not wallpapering the bathroom with it. <laughs> but they know that I do it. Yeah.
0: Okay. How do you present that to them? Like, do you say, this I is know. you don't. You don't, don't. Sh- you don't share episode, like, uh, issues yeah. with them or anything. No. Okay.
1: I've never shared an issue with them of anything in my life. Right. I mean, I tried. I guess. I guess it was a bit of an overstatement. I've tried to present an issue or two, you know, like for instance, a woman's rights issue or two, or maybe like a a, a gay issue or two. But I wouldn't say that they were well received, and uh, nor would be the issue laden issues of the magazine that I make.
0: Right. So what? Well, about-
1: some people don't have parents at all. So
0: that's right. You got to let people uh, be who they are, and vice versa. Hopefully, I mean, do you feel like they accept you?
1: Uh I don't know. I don't know, Brad. How do you spell it? B-R-A-D-L-I-S-T-I. I'm just making it at the check for our hour here today for our session.
0: <laughs> Seems like a fair question.
1: Um, do they accept me? You know, their phone number is... You can call them in London, Ontario and ask if they accept me.
0: Okay. That's a deal. So let's talk about drugs. Let's move on Let's move on to drugs because...
1: Oh, yeah. uh, That's a good question. If you just hold on one second, I'm going to take an Ativan.
0: Okay. Yeah. Right, so drugs. drugs. you have done a few, but I mean, like when you left, uh, when you left home and you went to school, and especially when you made the break for Toronto to study journalism and whatnot, and you're kind of in the big city on your own. It's not uh, big
1: city.
0: I know, but it's. I, I mean, mean, it's a
1: big city, but there's a small relative downtown.
0: Right, but comparatively speaking, to the environment that you grew up in, it was a new, it was a, <laughs> it was a new horizon, and it was a bigger scene. And like, I'm assuming this is when you started to experiment with drugs.
1: I did drugs sometimes. Sometimes a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm.
0: What kind of drugs?
1: Ecstasy, cocaine. Um. I I guess I, I smoked weed before I went to Toronto, but I was never. I've never been a big weed person. I am of the persuasion that drugs should be bad for you and sort of glamorous. I don't believe that weed is either. Um, and I was never great on it, you know. Yeah, me neither. I would really because you live in California, which is the other place. No, I'm, I'm, you're I'm supposed I'm, to be good at weed. I
0: can't do it. I'm, I get uh, I feel stupid. I you know I get a little oh, okay. I get a little paranoid, or I'll start laughing in a way that feels like uh, like, <laughs> like un, unearned. You know, like unearned. Like what? Well, nothing's funny. Why am I laughing? Like I guess that's yeah, of, yeah. And then you're just like, I can't be social, and I I've lost my verbal capacity, and this just isn't fun. I'd rather be sober. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> do you do recreational drugs still, or was this just like a phase when you were younger, and then it sort of petered out?
1: Um, I can't really afford, in uh, in a time sense, and probably not after a while, in a money sense, to do drugs recreationally a lot. If you give me drugs, I'll probably do them just right. out of principle. <laughs> right. You do, know. Do
0: you have any pivotal experiences? I just that- don't. Do you have have any pivotal experiences on drugs in your life that you feel like, um, Mm -hmm. like really shaped you or like, like set you on a different course or something that you feel like really?
1: Yeah, I had, of course. I mean, let's see. I did. No, I didn't. I was going to say that I did ecstasy at a Daft Punk concert, but I think that's just how good Daft Punk was. I don't think I (laughs) was doing ecstasy then. Yeah, it did take a lot of ecstasy to think that Justice was um, an important musical group, um, which I think I did for a time. Uh, I Let's see. I did Acid for the first time with my ex-boyfriend, Chris, on Toronto Island, on the nudity and courage part of Toronto Island. And that was very, very beautiful. Um, what
0: would you guys do? Uh,
1: we, you know, <laughs> it's really hard to explain what you do. You don't really do anything on acid. Right. You look at like a handful of sand and you're like, wow, I wonder how much each of these individual jewels is valued, you know, <laughs> um, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, it was great. I had a spontaneous orgasm. I swear to God on acid. But if you think that I'm going to describe that to you,
0: no, not uh,
1: Ask me again in ten minutes.
0: Has that ever happened to you since? <laughs> did did that ever did that ever happen to you before? Or since, like, if you cause that's no, just, never, no. no. It was just you were so fucking high that you just had an orgasm. I
1: was so hot. No, I mean, it's just like, I mean, sex is often, usually, I think, like a ideally a mental thing. I think if sex is not in some part mental, then it's probably not what we call sex. There's another word for that, which we don't really have to get into, but yeah. Um, and so it was just sort of an extreme of, um, of kind of being in your head, Wow, being in your head and being in, and being in your body.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. So that was
1: not a good, uh, description of the experience, but it's the kind they, of thing Mm-hmm.
0: They defy words. Those experiences defy words, and yet I'm always asking about
1: those. I would hate to think that it defies words. <laughs> I wrote something on acid once. It name? was only a draft. I don't think it was published in its most acidic form. But I reviewed Nymphomaniac, the movie ones, and I really didn't want to write it. So I locked myself in a room and took acid. Whoa. And I just had like a pen and paper. And so, it, <laughs> so I just wrote <laughs> a lot, a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I think I tried to go to a meeting. I haven't done acid that much, but I would do it um, like weekly, I think, if I could.
0: Wow. That's, uh, acid's not expensive. You could work that into your budget.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but again, <laughs> I can't be like, you know, contemplating the color of strawberries for fucking three hours every weekend, you know, which is right. what you would, what I would do on acid.
0: You got to have time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I want to do, I want to do hallucinogens in particular because I feel like there really is, um, something there, you know, something.
1: Yeah. And you can really bond. Yeah. But I just you should I... try it with your child. Yeah. Well, she's four years old. <laughs> Let's give it some That's... time.
0: <laughs> That's fine. And, and like the thing too, though, is that, uh, I'd be a little nervous. I mean, dosage always makes me a little, uh, wobbly yeah. because you don't want to. It
1: makes you a lot more yourself. That's the other real hazard. So, you know, when I did it with my ex-boyfriend, he would see, I mean, I think he would have to be like a real fucking loser to not see the beauty and everything on acid, but he would see the beauty more, I don't want to say simply, but more purely maybe, or um, I would see things, I would see things very beautiful. And then after 10 minutes of staring or 20 minutes of staring, sort of like the blackness at the edges, or I'd see things start to sort of burn and curl at the edge. And it was very, and I couldn't look in a mirror at all. Um, yeah, that's so bad yeah. Idea.
0: Yeah. But I mean, it's funny. You say you become more of yourself when you're on acid and then right. you took acid and had a spontaneous orgasm. That says good things. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a, you're a, um, what's the word? Benign. I
1: don't know. I guess I'm sorry. You think orgasms are benign?
0: Well, I just, <laughs> I just mean it's a positive. It's on the positive side of the human yes. experiential ledger. Yes, that's right. Yes.
1: So, it's on what is now considered to be a more positive spectrum, but certainly wasn't always.
0: Yeah. But you're helping to change that. Do you feel like you're helping to change that with Adult Magazine?
1: Um. Hmm. I think. It's too early to say. <laughs> I guess personality-wise, I'd probably be loath to ever say that I'm helping anyone or anything. <laughs> not that I'm like, not that I'm disinclined. It's just like that's a lot to say about yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that change comes much faster on the surface than underneath. So I hope that we can, you know, that we can make the magazine long enough to participate in a more lasting change certainly i would not say that we're single handedly affecting e f f e c t is what i mean when i say affect um a change
0: okay do you believe in god
1: no (laughs) okay
0: i'm just curious after all of uh, all of your youth and then the acid and everything like where do you stand on that you completely atheist we're all alone in the universe it means nothing
1: uh I believe in weather and I believe in certain necessities that can feel like destiny and um you know I believe in a lot of things that people have made up, but I would prefer not to believe in God.
0: Okay. Um so I wanna ask you some more about style. Because Mm -hmm. this is something that, you know, I know, I know that I'm a
1: great believer in style. I
0: know, but I'm, I'm curious because I know that like everybody has a sense of style, whether they want one or not, like however you're looking, like you've made decisions, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but some people are really good at this and you're good at it. And I'm curious as I'm thinking to myself, okay, so she grew up in this religious uh, environment where like Mm self-expression was repressed and style is a form of self-expression that was probably, Mm -hmm. um, part of that. You know, you weren't allowed to dress certain ways and you, now you, you know, then as you got older and uh, became an adult, you could. And I mean, is that where you started to get your fascination? Well,
1: I, I was, you know, sometimes allowed to choose my clothes. There were rules about how we dressed, but I, I know my mom would make clothes for us and we were taught to make clothes, my sisters and I for ourselves. Um, and I think we had to be a little bit creative because we didn't have the most money in the world. So yeah, I don't know. When I was very young, I would have favorite pieces of clothes, like a lot of kids, and wear them day after day. And, you know, certainly repetition is a form of style. I had a skirt with strawberries all over it that I wore until, you know, there were no more strawberries left. Um, Many years later, Yves Saint Laurent, maybe in 2011, made a skirt, a long skirt, white with strawberries. But unfortunately, I was not rich enough to buy it.
0: I was going to say, what did that go for?
1: Oh, I don't know. Probably $1,000, maybe more. I used to write a lot of it, fashion. And um, I thought it was a bit of a left turn after journalism school. I don't really remember what it was that I thought I would do before journalism school. I think I just wanted to make money, and I didn't know what I could do besides write. But after journalism school, I went to Internet of Fashion Magazine. So, you know, I learned things and I was immersed. Um, I went to other cities for the sole purpose of looking at clothes and, you know, writing things down about the clothes. Um,
0: So is it it something that can be learned? Is it something that you're born with or is it something that can be learned or is it a little bit of both? A
1: little bit of both, like everything.
0: Yeah. And so what brought you to New York? Like how did you decide to move to the United States?
1: I was unhappy in Toronto, and then I was in New York for 10 days in the winter, and on one of the days that I was in New York, I realized suddenly that I was happy, and in my lifelong self-preserving foolishness, I thought that feeling might last, and so I moved here. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm glad that I did, because it has done so much for me, Um, because I've met my best friends, and my husband and I make a magazine that I don't think I could make elsewhere. The people who work with me on adult are so so good, not and so valuable not just on their merits, but in terms of being people for whom I want to keep making the magazine. Um I have had to learn to be self motivated but often I'm not, often I don't think of myself as the best motivation. So to have these people around me, like Anna, Raeann, and Zariah, and Lauren, and now Leah, and now also Kelly, you know. And, you know, um, and, you know uh, and more to come, to have these friends and first readers um, and really brilliant peers around me you know it's like i want to make a magazine that's good enough for all of us not just for me it's a much better magazine it's going to become a much better magazine uh if i make it to be good enough for all of us and not just to be good enough for me
0: are there any straight guys working for the magazine is it no it's women it's all women what is it
1: uh well there's ram but he's not straight
0: okay is that by design
1: His his being not straight? I don't know. I'll ask him. I think that's a subject of debate and has been for a long time. Far be it for me to settle it here on this podcast. But, yeah, there's Rayanne. And, you know, Jesse's straight. and He's my husband. And um, it would be difficult to do the magazine without him because he is, you know, so fucking smart and so generous. So good to me and to really all of us at the magazine. Um, And what does he do? What does Jesse do? Jesse writes.
0: Oh, he's a writer. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, like, I didn't know if he was like, is he editing it? Is he bankrolling it? Is he involved? He, at worked,
1: at, he worked at Harper's.
0: Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so he's got valuable insight into like how to do a magazine.
1: He, <laughs> I don't know that we've benefited so much from his working at Harper's, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, no disrespect to Harper's, but more so just from his being here to like take care of me so I can take care of other things Right. and from his being a great, great reader of things and, um, and, you know, also from having a line of credit that really bailed it the second issue.
0: And then what about like, where can people get like, once it comes out, like, do you have, um, uh, you know, distributors or places that people can get it? Like, is there like one bookstore that carries it or is there, I guess you could, yeah,
1: like- we have a distributor. Um, yeah, it's the first two issues were distributed by DAP, which distributes art books in addition to select magazines. But I want us to be distributed more widely. I like I like all the stores that we're in, but I would also like us to be in less um, specific kind of boutique places you know, there's like an invisible barrier around museums and fine clothing shops. So, you know, you could go in and buy it, but there are a lot of people who wouldn't. And I would just like to reach more potential people. I'm not trying to make a magazine for everyone, but I don't want to limit the readership to like people who buy like acne and go to the MoMA.
0: (laughs) You could be uh, like, I mean, like, do you ever think,
1: uh, I want it to be like a magazine that I, when I was a teenager with very little access or money that I could, you know, I could find the magazine somewhere not just find out about it, but actually go and find it. That would be really nice, I think. And I guess there's always Amazon, but <laughs> it's yeah. Amazon.
0: It's not a very sexy place to buy anything. Maybe. Well, it's
1: also just not a very good. Yeah. Not that I don't shop on Amazon. No, I don't. Me too. Wanna,
0: me too. I'm shopping on. It I'm now. not
1: speaking from like the highest grand. Okay, but <laughs> it's impossible. I know that really. there are people who are better with their principles than I am, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they don't like to shop on Amazon. And I don't, you know, really like to sell on Amazon or distribute ourselves to Amazon.
0: Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's hard to avoid in the, in any the, in the kind of media, like print media. Um. <laughs> Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you. Has it?
1: That's good.
0: Yeah, you've been great. <laughs> and uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. All right, guys. That's Sarah Nicole Prickett. Check out Adult Magazine. You can find it online at adult-mag.com. And uh, you can follow Sarah on Twitter. Her handle there is at SNP, SNP, She also has a Tumblr uh, and an Instagram account. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, the Other People app, the official app of the podcast. Go get it. It's free. The app is free. Get it on your uh, your device at uh, your app store of choice. When you do that, the most recent uh, 50 episodes of the show will be there waiting for you free. And then if you want to stream the deep archives, get access to everything, you can sign up for a premium account right there within the app. It's very cheap. Great way to support the show. Please do that. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I don't know why that lion freaks me out in Los Angeles. Well, I mean, it's it's an animal that could feasibly kill me, so I guess that's why it freaks me out, but just... You know, there's there's mountains. It's a mountain lion. It's its natural habitat. They were here before we were. But Los Angeles is just such a beast of a city. It seems crazy that there would be a lion in the city. Can we air? I mean, but apparently, if you take the lion and you tranquilize it and you move it to a more remote region, the other lions in the area will attack it. Apparently. So you got to leave it there. It's the mountain lion of Griffith Park. I just, uh, I fear the day that it comes after a, a person. You know, that is not the way to go. You do not want to end your days as a meal, generally speaking, unless you're already dead. In which case, it's not like what the Tibetan people do. They just put They just put the body out on the cliffside and the vultures eat it. Like one last, uh, you know, gesture of selflessness. The circle of life. And you know, I don't, I don't mean to sound too negative or too dark about humanity. I like to try to view people, uh, you know, as positively as possible. I don't think it helps. You know, and I'm, I'm not perfect on this score, but I don't think it's helpful to be down on people. It's very easy to be down on people. Everybody sucks. People suck people are doomed, the species is doomed, you know, all that stuff. Nobody cares, that kind of thing. Everybody's fighting a hard battle. But it just strikes me that at the level of sacrifice, like people care uh, up until the point of sacrifice, and it could be, uh, have I talked about this before? Temporal sacrifice, sacrifice of time, sacrifice of... uh, Social currency, sacrifice of actual currency, (laughs) like money sacrifice, time sacrifice. You get that you get to that point and it's hard. There was a guy in the news today uh, in Seattle, a CEO in uh, Seattle who cut his annual salary by $930,000 and raised the minimum wage for every employee in his company to $70,000 a year. So the CEO went from making a million dollars a year to making $70,000 a year. He was making a million and he cut it by $930,000 and redistributed that money to his employees. He's my hero for the day. You know, granted, he's probably got a shit ton of money in the bank so he can afford to do that sort of thing, but it's still rare. He probably feels really good right now. I hope he does. And I hope his business succeeds wildly, so it shows that it can be done. but it's hard to get people to do that sort of stuff. I find yeah, I mean, you know some people are some people are exceptions to the rule. like what you know when you think about it, who are the great people, who are the great men and women of the world? There are some, you know. What would they do? How do you be like that? How do you behave? with great integrity and kindness? That seems like a good question to ask on a daily basis. Generosity. But it's hard, you know. It's like you have to be in control of your own thing in order to be able to do that kind of giving, especially when it comes to like somebody's uh, emotional well-being, whatever the uh, situation might be. It's like if you're... It's, it's sort of like when you're on an airplane... And, uh, well, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, hypothetically speaking, if you're on an airplane and the airplane, uh, becomes, uh, distressed and there's a a loss of pressure in the cabin and then the oxygen masks, you know, the the masks come down, uh, you know, they always tell you that you're supposed to assist yourself first, give yourself oxygen first before assisting any dependents in your row, be they children or uh, the elderly or the sick or whatever. So... That's sort of what it's like. You've got to take care of your own shit first. You've got to give yourself that oxygen. What does that mean? That could mean any number of things. You got to have your shit together in order to be uh, a great giver. <laughs> does that make any sense? I ask that question a lot of people. I'm always worried if I'm making sense or not. Like I said, you know. The funny part is that you can't answer me. At least not in real time. So I have no idea. It's also uh, futile. And yet I continue to do it. Please remember that Ted Hughes' father was one of only 17 survivors from an entire regiment that was annihilated at Gallipoli. Is that how you pronounce that? Gallipoli? Also remember that Frida Kahlo had her right leg amputated. That's all for now. Uh, Thank you once more to Sarah Nicole Prickett. Check out Adult Magazine. Check out the uh, New Inquiry. I think inquiry on its own is easy to say, but when you you pair it with the word new, New Inquiry, it's that W into the I, fucks things up. want to point that out new inquiry it's a phonetical stumbling block for podcasters across the nation Um, thanks for listening you guys I appreciate it and uh, I will be back in a week with another conversation with another writer or somebody else involved in the narrative arts in some capacity and uh, I hope you will join me there's a lion in Los Angeles I'm in my garage right now and I'm wondering. I guess there could be a lion in here, th- theoretically. It's very unlikely, but it's possible. What if the lion just came down into the city? When is that going to happen? <laughs>